This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Do you get the quality sleep you need? Mattress Firm will find you the right bed for your best rest with their wide selection of quality mattresses at every price. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale. Sleep at night. Hey, hey, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. It's Election Day, and across the country, millions of Americans will be waiting in line to cast their vote for offices at the local, state, and federal level. And across NPR, you'll find coverage of those races and how the results will impact everything from the control of Congress to reproductive rights. But here, I want to focus on those lines people are waiting in. We hear a lot about how those lines impact voting access for Black and brown folks, but my guest today, Sammy Schock, sees and feels something more. The continued destruction of voting rights and making voting harder and harder is an access issue. I think we see a lot of conversations around cutting down on voting access as as a racial and class justice issue, which it absolutely is. Um, But it is also impacting the ability of disabled folks to be able to vote. Sammy is the author of a new book, Black Disability Politics. It's about the intersection of Black and disabled liberation and how to center disability politics in racial justice. A lot of times when we think of disability, we think of this is a personal medical issue that you should take care of or Mm. your family should be concerned about, but it doesn't really... It's not like a community type of thing. Right. Um, And disability studies has really pushed back on that to say, no, Mm. our experiences of disability are shaped by the larger social and cultural world. Sammy found that the mainstream disability rights movement struggled to attend to the needs of Black disabled people because Black people experience disability differently. Black folks, we've approached disability differently, largely because in Black communities, disability comes to us in different ways. Of course, there are folks who are born with disabilities within Black communities, but for a lot of folks, disability comes out of experiences of trauma, of violence, of state and medical neglect, right? Mm. And so because of that, the way that we approach attending to disability is often within this larger understanding of anti-Black violence and anti-Black racism. Today, Sammy and I are focusing on the intersection of Black and disabled liberation and how by looking at where they meet, we can find new ways of creatively addressing systemic oppression. After a quick break. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You began writing this book in 2017, but in 2020, once you had further developed the framework for Black disability politics, you said that you began to notice Black disability politics all around you, especially at the protests that you were attending during the uprisings of 2020. Tell me more about what Black disability politics looks like in practice. Yeah, I 
was really lucky to be connected to a lot of folks that were involved in the uprisings here in Madison, several of whom were already really enmeshed in disability justice type work. And Mm -hmm. so it started with the very first protest that happened here in Madison um, in response to the George Floyd murder, where we had a care team. And because we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? And at that point, no vaccines, no real knowledge of how COVID worked yet. We were still like bleaching groceries and stuff then, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we just like didn't know what we were supposed to be doing. And so we had a care team and the care team distinct from the security team um, was Mm -hmm. doing things like providing water, providing food, and then also having hand sanitizer and mask available because we wanted to keep people safe, but we wanted to gather and we wanted to express what we were feeling in response to another Black death um, in this country, right? And then we were also trying to be creative about the protests. So there were a lot of young people, right, that were like, we're going to be marching through the streets for hours and, you know, disrupting things throughout the city, which is a great tactic, but it's not a tactic that can work for a lot of people physically, right? Mm -hmm. To walk, not knowing where we're going or for how long we're going. um, Without taking breaks or, yeah. Exactly. So some of the things that we did to make the work more accessible was inviting folks to, for example, be part of the car that would drive in the front and the back of a walking protest to keep folks safe and together. So if you couldn't walk for long periods, you could drive. If you didn't have a car, but you wanted to be a part of it for some time, you could hop into a car. So I often drove as someone who's disabled and can't walk for long periods of time. And Mm -hmm. I would see, you know, stragglers and be like, hey, do you need a ride for a while? Do you need to rest? You know, so we could provide folks that rest and that care in that regard. We also did a whole car-only caravan where we shut down the highway here in Madison for a while. And that was a glorious thing to see. (laughs) When the curfew was going on and folks were protesting downtown, we also had people who were like, you know, either I can't be out downtown because I can't risk arrest or I can't run if suddenly we are running <laughs> from the police or right, the National from Guard. whatever, yeah. Um, I can't be out there because I have asthma. And if they use gas, I could, you know, it could be very dangerous for me. So what we had were some folks who were downtown who would be on live streams and they would keep us updated on what was going on. And there would be disabled folks like myself at home staying up late into the night, following all the live streams to tell our care team and our security team and our medics, hey, there's folks over here who need help or the protest has moved over here or this way because Mm. so much of it was not you know, a planned protest march where you're like, okay, we're going to start here and end here. That's no, not how that was working. No, it had working. to be reactive and yes. responsive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was the other thing was we had these other roles. And I really wanted to highlight that disabled people were deeply involved in the planning, the execution, um, and the longevity of the uprisings here in Madison, but they weren't necessarily in the street in the same way. The framework that you're using to talk about these things is new. But the practice of Black disability politics is not. And you write extensively in your book about um, the actions taken by, specifically something that really touched me, the actions taken by the National Black Women's Health Project Mm -hmm. in preventing HIV and AIDS in the 1980s. Um, Tell us about their work and how you see them as applying Black disability politics before you coined or defined this term as you have. 
Yeah, so the National Black Women's Health Project was started in the 80s um, with their base in Atlanta. And basically, Billy Avery, um, one of the founders of the organization, was asked to do a presentation on Black women's health. And she was like, okay, let me go do some reading, some research. And she was like, oh, there's just like not much information specific to us, <laughs> right? She was like, oh it's my just gosh. not there. It's so scary. Yeah. And so mm. she realized that that was a gap and that it needed to be addressed to understand, okay, what do Black women need to take care of themselves, to improve or take care of their health? And then, of course, you know, by impacting the health of Black women, we're impacting the whole community as women are often the caretakers in our community. Right. And one of the things that was not considered were things like, you can't just hand someone a condom if you know, their religious beliefs say that preventing a pregnancy is a sin. So how do Mm. we talk about protection um, and thinking about HIV if that's not an option for them? Or how do you tell a woman who is afraid, who is in an abusive situation to also then try to make her partner wear a condom when she's already just trying to stay safe? Right. So the organization did a lot of what they called self-help groups, but they basically formed small groups in communities. So people would meet in women's houses, at community centers, at churches, and they would get together and talk about what are the things that are making it hard for me to take care of myself and my family? What are the Mm. barriers? And how can I create shifts to improve my health? And how do I gain awareness of the larger systems? So they put out a lot of information in their newsletter, but they also had these self-help books specifically for Black women to teach Mm -hmm. women about um, different kinds of self-care aspects. But also my favorite, the one that I like to talk about is they had this whole section on patient advocacy that was like, Mm. when you go to the doctor, here are the things that you should ask when you're seeing a new doctor. When you go to a hospital, here's a list of specialists and what they actually do. So when someone comes in and says, hi, I'm an anesthesiologist, you actually know what what that means. Yeah. Um, And so this information to just be like, if you don't know, you're so disempowered in these settings. And it's so overwhelming. It's so interesting. It just it makes me think of that Tony K. Bambar quote about like the role of the artist being to make revolution irresistible. Mm-hmm. Revolution, it's hard for revolution to feel irresistible, like you said, if you don't have your basic needs met. Yeah. All right. We are going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're getting personal. Sammy talks about how embracing Black disability politics helped her embrace her own disability. We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Osea. This Mother's Day, treat mom to Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Staying on the on the topic of like the practice of Black disability politics, like and, and just what we've been talking about with regard to the National Black Women's Health Project and the Black Panthers, and even the experiences that you had in 2020 during the uprisings and protests. How do you think these lessons 
can be applied elsewhere in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's the main hope of this book is that people will take this up into their own arenas. Disabled people are everywhere. We're absolutely everywhere. So it's not just, are we having this in a wheelchair accessible room, although that is important, but also thinking about things like food, childcare, um, scents. Mm. Can we have virtual options? I mean, we're now so good at Zoom, right? We all know how to use it, even if we're exhausted by it. That Do we all have to come sit in a room together? One of the things I've really been pushing folks in Madison for is like, if we're going to do a march, tell us how long we're going to be walking. How long? That's a that's a that's a good piece of information. Right, cuz that changes whether or not I can show up and how mm. I show up. So taking the time to be intentional in planning and thinking about disabled folks is really really important to the any kind of Black liberation work that we're doing. So if we're talking about environmental racism, if you're saying, you know, this is going to have detrimental effects on, if we're talking about Flint water crisis, right? Lead in the water mm-hmm. is can have disabling effects um, on children's brains and bodies. If we're talking about that, is that just a talking point to show how bad it is? Or are we also saying, okay, so we know children are impacted by this. How do we support them? How do we help take care of these children? How do we prepare the school system to have more disabled children in them? What are these long-term plans to actually care for disabled people rather than just talking about, oh, this kind of violence has disabled people and that's bad. So we should work on this violence rather than Mm, thinking about the very much alive Black people. Right, right, right who are just being used as symbols sometimes for how bad some kind of violence is rather than being incorporated into the work itself. You know, despite the conversation that we're having in the book that you've written, you said that you struggled in the past to identify as disabled. You've also written in your book that that's not an uncommon experience specifically for Black disabled people. What's behind that hesitation for you and and also at large? Yeah, So I think a large part of this is the way that disability as a concept has been used against so many Black people, right, in terms Mm. of misdiagnosis or being labeled as something that we are not um, simply because of who we are. So there's long histories of, like, medical racism. I'm thinking of Jonathan Metzl has a book called The Protest Psychosis that talks about how schizophrenia became a Black diagnosis, specifically for Black men who were protesting, right? And so they were saying, yeah, you know, there are these black men that would say things like, you know, the man is out to get me or the police are out to get me. And they're like, oh, you're just uh, paranoid and schizophrenic. And so we're going to put this label on you. We're going to then drug you, right? Like forcibly treat you and then keep you confined. So there's this history that, of course, we are hesitant to say, especially around psych disability, Right. To claim disability because it has been used to justify incarceration and into, uh, institutionalization for so many of us. It's resulted in so much harm. I think also for a lot of Black folks, it's like, I'm already Black and I can't not let people see that. That's just a thing that you're going to know about me. Right. Can't hide it. So if my disability is not readily apparent to people, why Mm -hmm. give folks another reason to discriminate against me, to think whatever about me? So Mm -hmm. that I think is part of it. For me personally, I'm Black and queer and a woman. And so I was like, it just seems like a lot. (laughs) It just seems like a lot (laughs) of things. Like, how do I have all the things? 
Um, so I really was just like, I don't know. And for me, it was also a process of thinking that I wasn't disabled enough to claim disability as an identity. Mm. I have anxiety and depression, also chronic pain from a car accident. And I just felt like, oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if this counts. I don't know if it's enough. How, how can people use the lessons you learned to better understand their own disability? I think one thing is to let go of the idea that whoever gets SSI or other forms of state support are the real disabled people. There are a lot Mm. of folks who are regularly denied. It is incredibly hard to get state support. It takes tenacity and time and high levels of reading comprehension and organization to fill out forms and make the calls, right? It takes so much work to be recognized by the state or the medical industrial complex as disabled. So you don't need that in a disability justice community. We are not asking for paperwork. You can be a part of this because you recognize that your body and your mind works and operates outside of the expected norms um, and that you're looking for ways to create ease and acceptance in your life. For me, that's been things as simple as starting to ask for wheelchair service when I have connecting flights and layovers, because Mm. I was realizing that moving across an airport with an unpredictable amount of time and never knowing how far that distance is going to be, that I just needed a little more support. And I was really self-conscious about asking for wheelchair support as in a person who can walk, right? And who can who Oh, yeah, people can regularly. be very vicious about, about that. Super vicious, super judgmental. Um, and I think especially as a fat person, you know, I'm also aware of the way that people judge me there. Mm. I think that that is a big part of claiming disability is that when you're not claiming it, you're trying to be as able-bodied as possible. And that is sometimes putting so much strain on your body and your mm. mind. Um, autistic folks often talk about masking, right? Masking, like pretending right. to be uh, neurotypical and how exhausting that can be. And so I hope that folks can find that for themselves by finding community and realizing you are allowed to ask for support. Again, even if the state or the medical industrial complex does not recognize you as disabled. You know your body and your mind better than anybody else. And you know what you need if you can just find the community and the support to get those things. Hmm. Sammy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. That was Sammy Schock. Her new book is Black Disability Politics. This episode was produced by Barton Girdwood and edited by Jessica Plotchek. I'm Brittany Luce, and thank you for listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Talk soon, y'all. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. 
And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.